0: Y'all could leave right now and that would be worth it, wouldn't it? That was awesome. Uh, sometimes we, we think of ourselves as getting dealt a bad hand. How often do we think that we have such a good hand and, and why? Why do we have so much and is somebody else so little? That song really touched my heart this morning. Oh, and that's just the way it goes, the song says. It's funny. It's just a funny thing how we, we think about work sometimes. And it is something, as we determine in the, in the opening there, that it's, it's relevant. We all have access. We all have experience with work in one way or the other. And it's funny how we all want it, but then we want to be finished with it, don't we? We, we? we want to have a job. We want to have work, but we don't want to continue to do it. Anybody remember from the movie Dumb and Dumber when Lloyd and Harry were looking for a job and they said, There's no work in this town anywhere, unless you want to work 40 hours a week. Uh, So it's it's funny how different people have different perspectives and different views of jobs. Have you ever heard some of these? Uh, When when work feels overwhelming, remember you're going to die. I'm read that. Uh, I I think it's it's like my dad used to say the cure for a common cold is stick your head in a bucket of water three times and pull it out twice. You'll never have a cold again. You're gonna die. Uh, How about this one? Stay an extra hour in the office and no one cares. Arrive at 9.05 and everybody loses their minds because you're late. How about every day I arrive at work with good intentions and a great attitude? Then idiots happen. Every, everyone brings joy to this office. Someone they enter, someone they leave. <laughs> How about this one? Always give 100% at work. 12% on Mondays, 28% on Tuesdays, 40% on Wednesdays, 20% on Thursdays, 0% on Fridays. Don't ever buy a car that was made on Friday. Right, Tom? Don't, don't do that. Don't buy a car that's, that's made on Fridays. Now, the last one's a little bit more serious. It says, work for a cause not for applause live life to express not to impress there's there's a lot to that and there's also an old saying that comes to mind it says find a job that you love and you'll never work a day in your life and there's a lot of truth to that i, I don't completely agree with it but there's a lot of truth to that, that you find a job it's still going to be work but you'll you'll find yourself in a better place if you find a job you love. Problem is, how do we do that? How do we find a job we love? Well, my whole purpose today here is to help us all find a way to love our jobs a little bit more so that it won't feel so unpleasant when we're working for the weekend, as the first song pointed out. It'll still be work, but it'll be something that we can be fulfilled in instead of being frustrated in. There's a man named Tim Keller. And he's a, a pastor of a large church in New York. He's also a very prolific writer. He's, he's, he's on the bestseller list all the time. He writes about life and he writes about God. And he wrote a book called Every Good Endeavor, Connecting Your Work to God's Work. And so we're going to use his, his book, uh, some of his book as kind of a guide to take us through some attitudes, some concepts on work today. And, and he defined... He defined work this way. He said, work is any activity in where we engage in where we expend energy to accomplish or achieve something. Now, he goes on to say in that, in that article or that, that book, he said, it includes those who commute somewhere during the week, perform a set of duties and get paid for it. It also includes those who are stay-at-home parents, and who receive no financial compensation but have one of the most challenging and important forms of of work. Also includes those who are students and expend an enormous amount of energy. Students, you're working too. I just always tell my kids, this is your job. This is your job right now to do well in school. They devote a huge amount of time to working in order to receive a degree, and all of this is work. So as we think of the idea of of, of work, I, I wanna really ask God, to pour into our lives and our hearts about that. So could you please pray with me as we enter into this, this talk? God, you know, you know what all of us are thinking right now, uh, even if we don't know what to think. Sometimes, God, it's, it's difficult to know what to think in the many different situations we find ourselves in. We're asking you now to open our eyes and ears what you want us to see and hear so that we'll be more in tune with who you want us to be and how you want us to live and we pray this in your son Jesus name amen Uh, my my dad uh, my dad was 48 years old when I was born Uh, so I had a little different relationship with him by the time I graduated from high school he was ready to retire he was finished with his working life and he was, uh, I remember him telling me one time that he had been working since he was in the third grade, that's, that's as far as he ever got in school by the way because they pulled him out of third grade and put him to work, and he was eight years old and he went to the coal mine in Pennsylvania and he, he separated slate from coal and he worked 12 hour days on a regular basis. That was before the child labor laws I guess, this was this was back in 1915 is when he did this. So after he told me how long and faithfully he had worked, I was, I was sitting there listening and expecting this, this motivational pearl of wisdom to come out of his mouth about how I should, should view work. And then he said to me, and I hated every day of it. <laughs> and I thought, wow, I, I, I was supposed to be motivated by this. But you know, I never questioned him on that attitude toward work at that time because I had had some jobs myself. I was 17 at that point. I had a paper out. For five or six years in, in my life, I had a janitor job for a year. I had uh, swept floors at local businesses just to get a little bit of money to get me through high school. And so I agreed. I agreed with my dad. I never really liked doing those things. I just wanted the money. Uh, there was a there was a Gallup poll take, recently taken that kind of supports my dad's sentiments on this. Uh, in 2017 Gallup poll, they found that 85% of the world's one billion full-time workers hate their work. Can you imagine that? 85%. Talk to some people after the first service, they say, yep, I can believe that. I totally believe that. I have workers that, that I, I can really support that. Out of that 85%, 62% of them are not engaged. They're described as not engaged. So That meaning they, they kind of sleepwalk or check out during their work and really don't contribute any energy toward their work. Then there's 23% who are actively disengaged. They hate their jobs and they show it by by acting out in the workplace and undermining their co-workers in such a way as they're not contributing but actually de- degrading the workplace in, in that way because of their attitudes. So here's what this means. It means only 15% of the world's one billion workers are really feeling a sense of passion for their work and they'll drive innovation and attempt to improve their organization so if you think you're an exception to that study let me ask you this which, which day do you like better Monday or Friday which 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 one do you you like better yeah fr- Friday because None of us jump out of bed on Monday saying, thank God it's Monday, all right, I get to go to work. Not too many people do that. They they thank God it's Friday because they don't have to deal with their boss or they don't have to listen to their coworkers or they don't have to deal with a commute or, or listen to a boring lecture if you're a student or sit at your desk. You say, thank God it's Friday because I don't have to work until Monday. Well, if you feel this way, you're not alone. You're, you're not by yourself in this. Now, most of you know that my wife... Casey and and I have a son named Matthew. When I mentioned his name at first service, he went, yes, all right. And he didn't know what I was going to say about him. But he has Down syndrome, and and he's the youngest of our six children. And much like my father uh, and I, I, Matthew was born when I was well into my career. I was 44 years old when he was born. He's now 18. And I used to be retired until about four months ago when I took this job as executive pastor here at Kensington. Uh, sometimes I'm not so sure why I did this, uh, but uh, maybe some others are wondering too, and hopefully you're not wishing I didn't, but here, here's, the, here's the reality of this job that God has for me right now. I really believe it's right where He wants me, and it's right where I want to be. Now, isn't that a great place to be in a job? Right where God wants you, and right where you want to be, but I'll tell you, it hasn't always been that way. I've had some pretty dismal times in my 44 years of, in the workforce. And and I, uh, I gotta tell you about a couple of them. When I was early in my 20s, uh, I was uh, I was a navigator on a B-52 for the Air Force and while that might seem pretty exciting to a lot of people, and, and it sorta is, uh, my, my memory of that that time of training and getting into that aircraft was flying in a 187-foot-wide aircraft, 158 feet long, at 300 feet over the desert floor. And if you can imagine, when you're flying at that altitude, what does a plane do at that altitude? It, it, it buffers, and there's a lot of heat coming off. And so in that environment, I lost my lunch about 80% of the time. So I would come home and tell Casey, uh, I'm literally sick of my job. I, I don't know how much longer I could do this. And and so, later on, I continued in there, I tried to get out of the job, couldn't do it because they said if we let everybody out that got sick in the B-52, we wouldn't have anybody to fly it. So, I was stuck. Later on in my career, and still in the B-52, I'm still, I'm doing training missions in, in South Dakota, and we're, we're showing up at 3.30 in the morning, we're... Uh, getting ready for our pre-flights and going out on a 10 to 12-hour mission. Sometimes we get home at 6 to 7 at night, sometimes we wouldn't get home at all because the weather would come in and we wouldn't be able to land. We'd have to go to another base. For a young family that was not a really good job for me. I just didn't enjoy it. I didn't look at it the right way. Uh, Later on in my career I went to a, a job in Nebraska at Omaha where I worked for the US Strategic Command and I my job was to build and plan and train all the people involved in nuclear war. Now that sounds like a crazy job but that was my job and, and I had to plan exercises that would take us through the scenarios that that would get us into a, a situation that that we could win one of those or at least deter that, that crazy thing from happening. So this job I worked probably 60 to 70 hours a week or more every Saturday, every Sunday. I did that for three years, and the worst part about this job I worked for a two-star general that would call me down to his office and yell at me once or twice a day whether I needed it or not. He would just come down and tell me that I was doing something wrong even if I didn't because he was just that kind of guy. So this was the kind of atmosphere and the kind of jobs that sometimes my I remember. My worst memory and my career was my last job in the Air Force. When I worked for uh, a colonel in the Air Force that was a division chief, I was his deputy division chief at Air Combat Command in Virginia, and this was where we took care of, managed all of the aircraft that the US Air Force owns. We, we took care of everything, we built exercises to make sure they were trained, to make sure they, had, uh, they were well equipped to do their jobs. Well, this, this person I worked for, uh, I can kindly describe him as the most despicable person that I've ever met in my entire life. That was kind. Uh, and, and I'll tell you, he still holds that title in my, in my judgment. So uh, I worked for this guy. I would go into this person and say, could you please fire me because I can't stand this job anymore. And he said, no, 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 you're doing exactly what I want you to do. I said, but you're not, you're kind of a jerk, man, how can I work for you? So it was a rough, it was a rough job until, until God got hold of me and I started to pray for this individual. I started to pray and said, God, I can't, I can't control my attitude toward this job, toward this person. Could you either change him or change me? And God changed my heart toward that guy. And I told him, I said, I'm I'm praying for you. I'm gonna to continue to do the job as best I can, but I want you to know that I'm praying for you because I don't like the way things are going, but I'm gonna to continue to do it. And when we let God into our world, when we let him into our our life, somehow things get better. And they did. They got they got better. So the point there is we all have different experiences, we all have different perspectives on on life but i want to get back to matthew for a second because i want to make a point about that matthew is a is an interesting interesting little fella he's uh he he if you know him he uh he's really a blessing in our life but sometimes his his idea of work is to find a book with a story or a picture and sit down and just copy it he'll just copy that like word for word and meticulously draw this stuff and and it amazes me sometimes I just think how can he be so dedicated to something that I don't think matters at all I mean think of how do you do that but he calls it his work that's his work well I, I relate that to the workplace sometimes we can't get excited about something we're doing but our boss does and sometimes we have to submit ourselves to that whole concept. So I want to I just share with you my definition. We, we saw Tim Keller's definition, but I want to share with you my definition of work because it adds something to it that he didn't really put in there. And this is, this is what I think of work as. Work is a submission to authority and doing what needs to be done whether we like doing it or not. That's work. We can like it. Or we don't like it, but we still submit to the authority and get it done. And I've concluded in my life, in my experience with work, that what has been best for me, it's been best when I fully submit to the authority that God has appointed over me in my life. We see an example of this in the scripture. When Jesus met this centurion. Now, a centurion was a Roman soldier who had been given command over a hundred soldiers in the Roman army. And they were, the Roman army, the Romans were enemies to the Jews. They were pagans, mostly. Uh, Jesus, on the other hand, he was going around teaching and healing people all over the land. And word had spread about Jesus doing this, so much so that even the Romans, who were oppressors and they held the Jews under their thumbs, they heard about Jesus. And this centurion, who was a commander in the army, who was literally oppressing the, the Christians, He came to Jesus for help. And here's what he said. In Matthew chapter 8, he said, When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Here's what Jesus said to him. Shall I come and heal him? How many of you have gotten that answer to your prayer when you say, Hey, my mom is sick. My son is sick. Shall I come and heal him? That would be nice. So this centurion had that opportunity. He could have said, yes, Jesus, come and heal him. But instead, the centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go, and he goes, and that one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, "'Truly, I tell you, I have not seen such faith in all of Israel.'" Notice the attitude that the centurion had. This guy was a commander who could bark out orders and have people respond. And when Jesus asked him if he would come to his house to heal his servant, he didn't have this attitude of entitlement that sometimes we have in the workplace, sometimes we have in our lives. He didn't have that attitude of entitlement. He said, I am not worthy. And he submitted to the authority of Jesus because he had faith that he could do it wherever he was. And Jesus commended that. Jesus said, he has great faith. Now, There's another passage in the scripture that reminds us of the authority that is appointed over us. And that one is in Romans 13, 1. It says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. I got to take a breath here because I sometimes really struggle with that one. In the current state of our government and the state of our world, don't you often wonder, God, where are you in these governing authorities around the world and even in our own country? But I have to admit, when, when I realize that the authority of God, and I keep that in mind, it'll take us through our, our attitudes and our perspective, and it'll bring into our lives that, that attitude that the centurion had where we're under authority, and it's God's authority that we're trusting. The way that we can grasp a, a new attitude toward our work is to look at our work the way God looks at it, and I, I think what we're going to look at today real real briefly here is that This will help us do our jobs better. It will help us feel better, ultimately be less frustrated at our jobs. Uh, We we might just become part of those 15% of people who actually have passion toward their jobs, if we're not already there. So the way God looks at work when we leave here, I hope we feel differently about our jobs. And the first concept, the first thought that I want to go through is work has identity. In Genesis, the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, We read how God worked and how he created the world and how the heavens and the earth lay before him and he saw all that he had made and it was very good. In Genesis 131, it says exactly that. It says, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. God didn't have to work. He established work as a good thing. Does does that ring untrue to anybody. Work is a good thing even before that things changed in the world. He desired to make us into a, a people that would feel the satisfaction of our work and, and, and look at it and say that's very good. There's a, a, a woman, an author who says, uh, Dorothy Sayers, her name is, she's a British novelist and theologian in the early 20th century, she said, and, and listen, to this, listen to this statement she made, she said, work is not primarily a thing one does to live but the thing one lives to do. I thought that should be about eating instead. I kind of live to eat, not eat to live. But she says it's, it's work, it's the thing that we should live to do. But this work that we're looking at it is part of our identity but it's not just part of our identity. It's also about what it means to others. <clears throat> so the second concept the second thought that that Tim Keller pointed out was that work should be service. Uh, He he quoted another author, Simon Sinek, and he's an organizational consultant and an author, and he said, and and listen listen to this, it really kind of hits home. If you want to feel happy, do something for yourself. If you want to feel fulfilled, do something for someone else. Now, most of us don't really like to hear that, because we want to do stuff for ourselves. But it depends on what you want. If you want happiness and comfort and convenience and all those things, then do something for yourself. But in the long run, doing something for others is where we get fulfillment. God's plan for work was in place, if we look in the book of Genesis, it was as, as we just looked at, it was in work before sin even entered the world. Now sin, if I asked everybody in this room, what is sin? Uh, I'd probably get a bunch of different answers about what sin is. Uh, and we'd have all kinds of relative uh, views of it. But sin literally is missing the mark. It's doing something that God says not to do or not doing something that he says to do. It's just basically not doing what God says to do. It's like it's like taking an arrow and shooting it at a target and missing the bullseye. That's literally what sin means, missing the mark. So when we look at work as as part of our... Uh, I, identity and as part of our service and as part of the the plan that God had when we entered in the world, we don't look at it as a necessary evil. We look at it as something God intended. But sin distorted that perspective and it distorted that purpose in our life. And And we no longer look at work as a good thing, but we look at it as an evil. It becomes primarily about us. It becomes primarily uh, something that we do that eventually leads to burnout and disillusionment and frustration and, and a meaningless kind of life. A lot of people are in that category of work. But the purpose of our work, if it's, if it's to serve others, if it's to benefit someone else other than ourselves, then it will change what we get from our work. God designed work to be done not with ourselves in mind, but to serve others. So that's kind of a conclusion to that, that whole idea. So you're thinking, how do I serve others in my job? Well, th- well think of a few things. If you're, if you're a schoolteacher, you serve the kids, and you serve parents. If you're a doctor, you serve your patients. If you're a farmer, you serve the world by providing food. If you're an auto mechanic, you keep your, our cars on the road. I, I don't like paying those bills to auto mechanics, but I sure like my, my cars to run. If, if you're a laborer, or if you're all types of uh, support that they provide services to everyone who has the need, and the list goes on, if whatever you are, then you provide that service to others, and it fulfills you in your work. There was, a, <clears throat> there was an article in the New York Times back in 2007, and it talked about a, uh, a challenge that was, was taking place in New York City. It was called the Sludge Olympics. How about that word? And it was a competition where the New York City sewage workers, were they had an opportunity to display their skills. <clears throat> and here's some of their skills that they included. Repairing sewage pumps, patching gushing pipes, Detecting fecal coliform, rescuing dummies from manholes and disinfecting them. I like that fecal coliform one. Not, I'm not positive what that is, but it sounds like a good thing to detect and to take care of. So when they did all this competition, they got this publicity and they, they, they said, this is amazing, you guys have such good attitudes about your job and your work in the sewer. And, and one of the men said, well, it's enough because we serve the public. That was his attitude. it was enough for him to serve. So I ask you the question, why is it it that some people who are very well paid and they work in incredible environments and they still feel that their work is empty and meaningless and others who work in the sewers in New York City can find fulfillment? That's a great question. And part of the answer is when the purpose of our work is not to serve and benefit ourselves but others we're able to find meaning and satisfaction in our work and another part of that answer don't forget is to submit to the authority of God and not to our own authority so the third reason we'll we'll move through this the the third reason for work is to, to treat work as worship and worship God intended it for us to honor him through our work. In Genesis 2.15, it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. This was before sin. This was before we messed it up. He put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. There's another author, Tom Nelson, in his book, Work Matters. Uh, he writes this about that verse. He said, "Properly understood." Our work is to be thoughtfully woven into the integral fabric of Christian vocation for God designed and intended our work to be an act of God-honoring worship. This means that we are not just to worship God, studying the Bible, coming to church, praying, doing all the, the things that we think we worship God. It means when we're talking to our boss and talking to our coworkers, and we're asking, uh, we're studying for an exam as a student, or we're sitting at a desk somewhere, or building a building, or, or taking care of our children. This should all be an action, an attitude of worship in our work, because it's all work. And God is honored when we do that. So, understanding that will change the way we work and how we feel about it. When we work with God in mind, rather than a paycheck promotion or a boss or, or our egos, it changes the way we look at work. Colossians 3.23 reminds us of this. It says, Whenever you, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. I just have to confess to you, I didn't always like that verse in in, in my life because I, I had some situations where I really wanted to go and tell my boss a thing or two and tell him that he was doing it all wrong. And I don't know, probably none of you have ever, ever had that feeling, but I didn't feel like I could go tell the Lord he was doing something wrong, but I sure did feel like I could tell my boss that. So I didn't like this verse all the time, but I knew it was true. I knew that this was the way I ought to look at my work. I knew that that When I have this submission to God's authority in my life, it changed everything. And it allowed me to worship him with my job instead of just being frustrated with my job. Another way that we worship God is through the fruits of our labors, the fruits of our work, and that's in giving and in generosity. And so giving is also a part of worship. And before we move to our last point, I, I want to uh, have our ushers come forward and take our offering. Now, I just, I just want you to know that if, if, uh, I don't want to feel any pressure toward giving at all, especially if you're here for the first time or first few times. Don't, don't feel any pressure toward giving. And if you're a part of this church and you are believing in what we're doing, regular attendance here, uh, this is your chance to give back to, to what we're doing. But still, don't feel any pressure. The Bible says each man should give what he's decided in his heart to give, not, not under compulsion, we should be cheerful givers. So, so do it with, with, uh, with cheer as, as we go into this uh, attitude of giving. But the final attitude that I want to work toward or look at is excellence. And work as excellence is another thought here from uh, Simon Sinek. He said, your work is your own private megaphone to tell the world what you believe. Have you ever heard the statement, what some people that you're the only Bible they'll ever read? by your attitude, by your heart, by what you do in the workplace, you are you are a, a megaphone of what God has done in your life. I have experienced this so many times in in the workplace. By the last 10 years of working for the government, I I was in a job that it was just there were a lot of weird weird people in there that didn't honor God, they didn't follow God. The language was horrible, but but I worked in this environment and I said, "I just want be a light I just want to be a person that they can come to and come to for answers and they did because I worked the best I could and my work was a megaphone to them but I want to ask you do you ever have you ever met someone who is one way at church and they're another way at work well maybe maybe you see that person in the mirror every morning I I don't know I'm just saying I'm not judging not not uh, condemning anybody but Sometimes we feel that way, don't we? We feel like we have to put on a, a, good, a, a good stage plan for, for church, but out in the world, then we can be ourselves. Well, <clears throat> if we do that, if we feel that way, then it's hard. It's hard to provide, look at God as our identity in our work, to have uh, worship, to have service. But if, if we look at our jobs and we say, how does God, want me to do this job does he want me to do it half-heartedly or does he want me to do it with excellence i just simply say this if you're if you're a carpenter how you worship god is or how you, you provide excellence is make good tables make good cabinets make good things that you build if you're a team leader lead your team well if you're a doctor take care of your patients with all the passion and love that you can and if you're a student write a great paper if you're if you're a parent teach your kids what they need to know about God and how to love God and we honor God by fully using those skills that he's given us so when the primary purpose of our work is about us it's one of the things that we're going to we're going to hear in this this next, uh, we're going to hear a video in a second, but the guy talks about the purpose-driven life, and the first line in that book says, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about the purpose that God has given us. So if we're looking just to make more money, have a more comfortable life, have a, a better feel about ourselves, it's going to be impossible to find fulfillment and freedom in our work. But if we claim God's purpose, and if we submit to his authority and give him the glory and honor that he deserves, not just the church, but in the workplace, then I know that we'll have that feeling or at least we'll grow in that direction. Now, is it possible to hate your job and still do a good job? Now, if you truly hate it, I don't think it is. But is it are you are you in that 15% or are you in the 85%? So if you're trying your best, if you're truly encountering just some difficulties and it's causing you to be uncomfortable that's okay that doesn't mean you're you're a bad worker it just means that God has not placed you in the in the in the place that he wants you yet it means that that there's better stuff yet to come if you're faithful in the little things God says I'll give you responsibility in the bigger things so we have to bloom where we're planted and we have to give thanks in all of our circumstances if we if we want to allow God to to influence our work And I know that's easier said than done. I I know it for sure. But I'll leave you with this thought about work. Working hard for something we don't care about is called stress. Working hard for something we love is called passion. So don't work for your company or your organization or your school. Work for the God you love and for his purpose. And your stress may just turn into passion. So I want to just address this a little bit some here today you're not quite sure how to get God into your life Uh, you might be sitting there wondering why would people ever commit their lives to Jesus and live with his purposes in mind instead of your own Uh, let me just let me just say this if you're of that mindset I want I want to encourage you to ask God to make himself real to you today That might take, don't don't worry about how to do it, just do it. It might take complaining to God. It might take, like that, that guy in that first song, he felt like he was dealt a really good hand. You might not have had a good hand. You might say, God, why did you deal this terrible hand to me in life? Complain to him. Tell him he's doing a bad job. But then, I want to invite you to listen to his gentle voice of mercy and grace. And as he says, I know it, I hear you, I want to help change your life and make it better. I'm, I'm allowing you to, to vent, I can take it, but I want you to, to know that no one comes to the Father except through Jesus, and you need to follow him. There's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved from our meaningless life. So I'm going to encourage you that you pray that today. Maybe you don't know how to do it, but if you do, if you go to, go to God and ask him to do that for you, Share it with somebody. Share it with one of us in the back. Share it with one of us up front. Share it with somebody so they can help you to grow and become more passionate about your relationship with, with God. We are going to now watch a video that, as Kevin talked about in, in the beginning, it's pretty powerful. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about it when it's finished. And I, I do have to caution you, if you do have some, some small children that you don't want to hear about, human trafficking or a lifestyle that's not exactly the most uh, um, pleasant, then you might want to take them out of the the building. It's very sobering, and I want want you all to uh, let it help us appreciate the jobs that we're in right now. Let's watch this video. I
1: was a prostitute. It wasn't just feeling trapped, I was trapped. Girls get raped out there, beat up, held hostage. Overnight, you're owned by somebody. Them four years was hell. I was in this hotel for, like, two years straight. I mean, like, they would bring you your food, they would give you your drinks, they would give you your your drugs. You gotta sleep with who they tell you to. You pray and wish that you could be done with this lifestyle. When we would sit there and talk about, hey, you know, how are we gonna get out of this? Well, you can call the police. Well, you gotta think we're doing dates with police officers, with detectives. We're doing dates with them. I never felt safe. I never thought I could turn to them for nothing. I've had the real type of law supposed to help you and then the type of law that's used you. So it was hard to trust them. You know, an officer rolls up on you, you don't know what's gonna happen. You don't know if he's gonna force you to do something or if he's there to actually help you. It's really traumatic. like, it's horrible. I wouldn't wish that lifestyle
2: on nobody. Nobody. The police were bringing me search warrants on human trafficking cases. And the prosecutor started showing me all the pictures and bringing the victims up with the bright red rings around their neck from fresh choking, hair pulled out, fresh burn marks where the guy had burned a cigarette in their skin just to torture them. And as this was going on, the sheriff brought the next defendant out on the wall and I looked over and that's when I saw a woman who looked just like one of these victims. She had that same aura about her. And so I looked down at the file and saw a prostitute and I thought we ought to start looking at the person that we're arresting for prostitution more like she's a victim of human trafficking. Just prior to this event, I was trying to teach my daughters the book, The Purpose Driven Life. So my one little daughter, she said, hey dad, you're doing really good teaching us about this purpose in life, but what's your purpose in life? And I was like, oh man, it just got me right there. So that night I just went upstairs and said a quick prayer. said, you know, I know I've got this really interesting job. So I said, if there's any way you could show me how to be significant in my work, I'd appreciate that. Then things started to happen very rapidly. I started researching and I found some amazing truths that totally blew my mind away. 1,500 women charged with prostitution a year coming through Columbus. Women who are involved in prostitution re-offend 80% of the time. So that's the revolving door syndrome. The average age of the first sexual abuse is eight years old. 96% of them are runaways before they become involved in prostitution. 62% of all women enter prostitution before they're 18 years old. I couldn't believe that people were taking advantage of our women and girls. And other vulnerable people in Columbus in such a horrible way. So we started a court in 2009 to allow them to exit this deadly and lifestyle. Okay, so Ashley, we go. Um, this is Changing Actions to Change Habits
0: certified. Ashley Bonner is graduating the phase two. The catch the third
2: number ten. Catch stands for Changing Actions to Change Habits because we ask women to change everything about their lives. Catch Court is a two-year intensive probation. They have individual counseling as well as group sessions. That's kind of hard for me. OK, I know how you feel, but you know I came
1: from married. I spent most of my time surrounded by other women, even though I held my own home. Like, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. like a legit sisterhood community. It's
2: amazing. It's These women like, have multiple complex trauma. That's at the core of their issue. And when you know how to engage them, with trauma-informed approach, they will respond. So instead of saying, what's wrong with you, I learned to say, I wonder what happened to you. All right, Tina. Hi, how many days do you have?
1: Two
2: hundred eight. Wow, Tina. All right, so where are you at with that GED? Fractions. Oh my God! Are you the statistics me? that we're now able to share—that if you spend six months or more in the program, 62% of these women never get arrested again. And if you graduate from the program, it's a high 90 percentile, never get arrested again. I think you can say it saves money, it saves police time, it saves court time. But for me, that's not where I consider the success. When I see multi-generational healing from parents to children and the women getting their children back and how important that is to those children, uh, that's what makes it worth it to me.
1: If it wasn't for Catch I would be back out on the street. It saved my life. They gave me my life back. They gave me a second chance. I have a home that I actually called mine. I have a one-year-old daughter I got custody of my 14-year-old twins back, my grandbabies and my kids. To be a part of their lives again, it's a wonderful. I could be a good example for my kids, and my daughter would never see me the way my sons did. I may not have been a good mom, but I'm one heck of a grandma.
2: This has been the best thing that's happened in my career and maybe my life. And now I can look my daughter in the eye and say, hey, now we know what dad's purpose was, don't we? I just
0: want us to think about that for a second and kind of let that sink in. This guy had worked for years as a judge looking at, These people coming through his court wondering what was his purpose in life? How did he make his work meaningful? And it was was right there all the time. Sometimes I think we need to look at our jobs and we need to say, God, what is it? What is it that you want me to see that I'm not seeing that's already here? It's already right there so that I can do something meaningful within my job whether you're a a, a employee or an employer it's, it's there's something there that God wants you to see and and if you can rest in this emotion for a second of this video and see how